Greetings, and welcome back to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Airsdale. On this episode, the season three premiere, I'm thrilled to welcome Franklin Leonard. Franklin is the creator of the celebrated and highly influential entertainment industry website, The Blacklist. What started anonymously almost 20 years ago has become a full-blown institution connecting writers with producers and serving as a nexus for Hollywood creatives to make movies. Franklin is also a writer, speaker, soccer megafan, and he has established himself over the years as a critically important voice on the intersection of Hollywood and social justice. I've wanted to talk to Franklin since I started working on this podcast a little over a year ago, honestly, to talk more deeply about Hollywood as a place and as an idea, particularly as it evolves into the 21st century. There's a lot going on there. Uh, It's obviously one of our oldest and most important California stories. So it's a thrill to finally welcome Franklin, particularly for our season three premiere. Uh, We'll get to that in just a second. Just a quick vibe check. How are you? How's your summer going? Um, It's a little warm, (laughs) I guess. Uh, I was feeling mostly recharged until about, I don't know, 36 hours ago. If you're in California, you probably know firsthand about the uh, heat dome, as they say, that is suffocating most of the state, particularly inland, particularly where I am. What is California HQ in beautiful Sacramento, California? As I record this on Monday afternoon, the temperature is, let me check, hang on. Oh, (laughs) is that all? 111 degrees. Is that all you've got, heat dome? Anyway, on Tuesday, when this episode drops, we expect 114 in Sacramento, and um, it'll probably be close to that, if not slightly higher in the Central Valley. Sorry, Bakersfield. And um, also the upper Sacramento Valley. Uh, Sorry, Redding. And of course, we have fire season picking up. The Mill Fire and the Mountain Fire way up north, pretty close to each other, up there by Weed. Uh, There's the McKinney Fire, just north of that. It's basically Siskiyou County is on fire. And if you're listening to this and you're up there, or if you have folks up there, stay safe, please. Be well. Uh, We're keeping good thoughts for you down here at What is California HQ? And we will be talking fires in the next week or two along with everything else that makes California what it is. We have a lot of excellent guests to help us unpack all of that in season three. So California Admission Day is this Friday, for those who observe, uh, which also marks the one-year anniversary of this podcast. September 9th, 2021 was the day we kicked off What is California with former Governor Jerry Brown. It's hard to believe it's already been a year and that we are on season three. Uh, Thank you very much for your listenership and your patience as we were on summer hiatus. We really needed it. Uh, I got out of the country for a little while. Uh, The airports in Europe are indeed as bad as you've heard, but I was so, so happy to travel again. It was much needed. And you may have been following the What is California newsletter on Substack um, since our last episode. Those weekend links that come out every Friday, if you haven't Uh, subscribe. You can subscribe to it for free at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. I appreciate everyone who subscribed, who has read the newsletter, who has shared the newsletter. And of course, the podcast drops there now, starting every Tuesday as well. Anyway, about a month ago, I started recording interviews for season three. And 
the minute I finished talking to Franklin Leonard, I knew I got to start the season with Franklin. I got to start the season with him and his story. It's such a great California story. Again, Franklin started the blacklist anonymously about 20 years ago, a little less than 20 years ago when he was working with Leonardo DiCaprio's production company. It was Franklin's job at that production company to help find good scripts for the boss to produce. And he basically one day just emailed a bunch of friends and peers asking about the best unproduced scripts they'd read. He'll tell the story in the podcast, but that first list was basically just a spreadsheet and it became the template for the annual blacklist, which for years has showcased screenplays that have gone on to not only get produced uh, and make a lot of money in some cases, but often win Oscars, uh, they headline film festivals and as a kind of collection, as a collective, I guess, they, they've shaped the movie and TV landscape as we know it today. So Franklin's going to tell us all about how the blacklist started, how it's grown and where it is today. And, and we do zoom out, of course, to the bigger meaning of Hollywood. And anytime you talk about the bigger meaning of Hollywood, you're talking about the bigger meaning of California. They're kind of inextricably linked. So you can go ahead and check the show notes for links to the blacklist and everything else we cover here. I'm thrilled to get started on what promises to be our best season yet. Sincerely, it's going to be amazing if the, uh, if the heat dome doesn't kill us first, no guarantees. So anyway, let's get to it. Here is me with Franklin Leonard on the season three premiere of what is California. Enjoy. Franklin Leonard, welcome to What is California. It's so great to have you here. I am very excited to talk about The Blacklist and all of your work in Hollywood over the years. Uh, before we get to that, though, first, let's start with your California story. Are you from here originally? And if not, how and when did you arrive here? Yeah, I'm not from California originally, though I've been here now for, well, uh, 18 years. Uh, no, 19 years. Coming up on 20, actually, uh, in 2023. Um, let's see. First time I was ever in California, I think it was, um, I think my family went on vacation in Lake Tahoe and we flew into San Francisco. Uh, that's probably my first, my intro to, to California story, but I moved here in March of 2003. Um, I had been working as a management consultant at McKinsey. I'd been laid off with five months severance. I came out to Los Angeles, originally intending to just come for a month and just check it out. Um, and while I was here, I got an interview at a creative artist agency and got offered a job. Um, so I, the back half of that trip, I spent training for that job. Uh, I got to just started the next Monday. And then my boss, uh, Rowena Arguelles, basically said, look, you can have two weeks to like get your life together and move to Los Angeles officially. So I went back to New York where I was living at the time, packed up everything, flew to Houston, Texas, and bought my, my now 104-year-old grandmother's car from her and <laughs> drove uh, the 10 from Houston all the way to Los Angeles. And I, and I still remember driving in uh, you know, on the 10 from, from the East, uh, like as the sun was going down on the Sunday before I would officially start the next morning, uh, working, uh, as an assistant at creative artist agency. And that's sort of the, my, my California origin story properly, I think. Yeah. So where did you grow up? Uh, primarily Columbus, Georgia, um, a city about two hours South of Atlanta, right on the Alabama border. Uh, my dad was in the army. Um, so we moved around a lot when I was a kid, I was born in Honolulu, Hawaii, um, lived in Germany for three years when I was very young. And when I was eight, we moved back to Columbus. 
Um, my dad got stationed at Fort Benning and, and we sort of stuck around because that was also where he'd grown up. So when you came out here to go to Tahoe, would you say landing in San Francisco was your earliest memory of California or was there one even before that? That's my earliest memory of being in California. I, 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 in, in prepping for this interview, I, I realized that I think when I was in fourth grade, we were assigned to do uh, reports on, on a state. Like it was like a, our first ever research oh, yeah. project. Sure, and, I did that. And I chose California and I remember doing this like, absurdly long i was a bit of a a apple polishing a you know a student in school i remember doing this like ridiculously long report on california and i think that was probably the like the first mental awareness i had of this state i think i just also remember being in awe by how big it was and how how important it was to the american economy like you know fourth grade nerdy franklin was just like do people not realize like how important california is but you know i was a fourth grade student in, in a school in Georgia. Like, Why did you choose California? I don't know. And I don't remember whether I chose it or whether it was randomly assigned to me, but I do remember that that was the state that I had to do the report on. Uh, and I do remember going like far and away beyond what, what was expected. Um, and I think that was probably also one of the early memories my parents have of being like, kids a little different. Um, <laughs> is that report still hanging around anywhere? I, I don't think it is. Although my mom does save a lot of stuff. You never know. But it's like, you know, fourth grader does 40 page report on a state um, and is like, you know, has sections on like the state bird and things like that. Like our, our child might be odd. Do you remember the state bird? I don't. actually. <laughs> I, I, I probably could Google it, but I should just own up to the fact that I have no recollection whatsoever. It's the quail. There we go. So, um, do you have another most enduring or significant memory of California from the time since you've been here? I don't know that I do. I mean, I think it's for me, it's more of a collage of like all of the high points of my life in many ways, right? Like I met my wife, my now wife in California. I I remember driving onto the studio lot for the first time. Um, I remember putting out, I remember launching the Blacklist website, you know, in my apartment in Los Angeles and, and then sort of going for a walk after the site was live and just saying, well, what's going to happen? What is what's going to happen? And I remember sort of looking up at Griffith Park Observatory and wondering if I would be forced out of town. Um, so I, I don't I don't know that there's like a single California memory that I sort of key into as much as it is, you know, this is the defining context of everything I've done over the last two decades of my life. Mm -hmm. So who are some Californians who have influenced you over the years or impacted you and who you are personally? You know, one, one person who I go to as a, as a Californian, um, and you know, she's become a friend is, is Ava DuVernay, right? She's like from, the LA area, the Long filmmaker originally in Linwood. Yeah. The director of Selma and creator of, uh, and, 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 um, when they see us and, and so many things. But, um, the thing that I, 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 I key in on about her other than just sort of being of LA, like went to UCLA, like she's been in Los Angeles, um, is the extent to which she has created community within Los Angeles. Um, you know, it, when you go to array, which is the, which is Ava's company, um, which is, you know, here in Los Angeles, it is a, it is designed to be of and for the community that exists in addition to making all of these things that, that go all around the world. And, you know, I think if that's, you know, I think of that as, as the, as a defining feature of, of living in Los Angeles for me, right? Like we are, we are a city, we are a working city, 
there, there are lots of people who have absolutely nothing to do with the film industry and the television industry who live and work in Los Angeles. But at the same time, that is the fundamental context of so much of what is put on screens in our hands, in our televisions, on our, mm-hmm. you know, 40 foot high theater screens right. all around yeah. the world. Um, and I, and I see that most sort of in her sort of local global focus and balance. Um, and I've always admired it and it's something that I definitely, uh, even before she was Ava DuVernay, brilliant filmmaker, when she was just Ava DuVernay publicist, um, that was a fundamental feature of how she moved in the world and very much something that I admire and, 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 and frankly try to live up to. Yeah. And what about California's geography? What places or locations or spaces have influenced you or impacted you? I mean, do you have a favorite California place perhaps? You know, I have been very much rooted to Los Angeles throughout my time in, in California. I, you know, I've, I've been down to San Diego for Comic-Con and, and for, you know, just for a good trip. Um, I've, I've driven up to San Francisco uh, up the Pacific Coast Highway and spent a little bit of time in, in San Fran. You know, I think for me, like the, the, the place, like the sort of geographical feature that, that is I most associate with California and that means the most to me is definitely Griffith Park. You know, Mm -hmm. I I live in Los Feliz here in Los Angeles. It's right in my backyard. It is the place that I go to sort of, to the extent that I commune with nature at all, to quote unquote commune with nature. Um, But it, it, you know, it's, it's, it feels like home and it is definitely a defining feature of my experience in this state. Let's get to your work. You wear a variety of hats professionally. We'll, we'll get to those, but you're primarily known as the founder of The Blacklist. Yeah. For the uninitiated listening right yeah. now, what is The Blacklist and how and when and why did it originate? So, you know, I think of The Blacklist as an organization that identifies and celebrates uh, great writing and great storytelling. Sort of that's like the the umbrella description I would give. But um, we do a lot of things uh, within that general umbrella. So it started as an annual survey. I was working at Leonardo DiCaprio's production company. My job was to find good screenplays. By virtue of working for arguably one of the biggest movie stars in the world, I was being sent all of the screenplays uh, by all of the agents and all of the managers. And because you know I was an Apple polishing a student, I tried to read them all. And most of them were not of a quality that I could walk into my boss's office and slam it down on his, his desk and say, cancel the rest of your day. This is your priority now. And that really is the standard that I think a great screenplay has to be to really move through uh, the system and get made unless you have sort of, you know, unless it's like Batman, in which case it's a different, you know, calculus. Um, So I surveyed all of my peers and said, send me a list of your 10 favorite screenplays that haven't yet been produced. In exchange, I'll send you the combined list. Did exactly that. And uh, went on vacation and didn't really think anything of it. I'd done this anonymously. And when I came back, everyone was sharing this list and the scripts that were on it were quite good. And they started, you know, the writers that were on it saw their careers accelerated. The scripts that were on it sort of were catapulted towards getting made. Um, And that's really sort of been true if you look at the last now 18 years of list because we've done it every year since. You know, four of the last 13 best pictures, I think it's 12 of the last 28 screenwriting Oscars were scripts on the blacklist before they got made. Um, and maybe most notably, especially for my mother, who still wishes that we go to grad school, um, you know, Harvard Business School did a study on the list three years ago and found that movies made from scripts on the blacklist 
make 90% more in revenue controlling for other factors than movies made from scripts not on the blacklist. Wow. And I think it's really important that I sort of state explicitly that I cannot take credit for the success of those movies, right? Like I didn't direct them or write them or produce them or do craft service on them. Um, I can't take the, the credit for the success of those movies goes to the people who made them. However, I think we can take credit for building a metal detector um, that identifies these things that have a greater likelihood to do, to be successful. And I think it also confirms what I think we all know deep down, which is if you start with a great script, you have a better chance of making a great movie. And if you make a great movie, you have a better chance of getting sort of, you know, good financial outcomes on having made it. It's not guaranteed, but you can improve your odds quite significantly. So that was the advent of the annual blacklist. And I started that in 2005. By 2010, the notion of a once yearly PDF that circulated via email had become sort of adorable. <laughs> um, the internet sort of whooshed forward uh, and everything changed. Um, you know, when the first blacklist came out, YouTube had been around for a few months. Facebook was in a few dozen schools. Maybe Twitter didn't exist. Instagram didn't exist. iPhones didn't exist. The way we shared information on the internet changed dramatically in those five years. And I wanted to build something that would allow me, that was like a real-time blacklist. Like when my boss asked me, hey, we need to find a script for this actress. How could I find it? And there was no easy solution to that. And so I started, you know, with my now partner, Dino Simone, we started building this ecosystem uh, that would allow, it was basically Google for screenplays, a database of, you know, everything that existed that you could, so you could find what you were looking for. And while we were building that, I realized that we could solve another problem that, that I realized maybe was more important to solve, which is whenever I would go speak anywhere as the blacklist guy, the first question that was asked of me was always, you know, hey, I wrote what I think is a pretty good screenplay. How do I get my script to someone who can get it on the blacklist? And, you know, other than saying, well, aim a little bit higher, try to get it made, um, <laughs> because the blacklist <laughs> is a list of scripts that haven't gotten made. I was just about to say that, actually, because it used to be you had to get the script on the you know, boss's desk, and now people just want to get you the script on the blacklist, right? Yeah. I mean, look, I think, I think that getting on the blacklist is an intermediate step to getting it back on boss's desks uh, you know, in, a, in a context that makes them pay more substantial attention to it, right? And, and framed in such a way that you know, it'll give you the best chance of success. Uh, but it's not the goal. The goal should be to get your movie made. Um, and I think it's important that I say that as the person who created the blacklist. Right. But you know, the, I didn't have a good answer to that question beyond aim higher. Um, and I would come back and ask people in the industry, what is the answer to this question? Surely if we recognize that the written word is the lifeblood of this industry, and if you're not acknowledging that, I don't know what to tell you. Um, there should be some sort of talent identification inf infrastructure that allows us to find the best talent, right? Like if you're uh, the, the owner of the Lakers, you don't say, well, if you want to play in the NBA, come play basketball, uh, you know, at a, uh, you know, at a pickup game near the Staples Center and maybe we'll find you. Um, but that's really what we were saying in Hollywood. The answers that I would get from people who knew better than I did was, enter the Academy Nickel uh, Fellowship competition, that's the Academy Screenwriting Competition, you know, if you place in the top 100 out of 7,000, someone will probably call you or just move to LA and get a job at Starbucks and just sort of network until someone pays attention to you. And I think mm -hmm. because I was hypersent, like, and again, I grew up in West Central Georgia, right? Like the reason I was able to move to Hollywood was fundamentally, I was a big math nerd in high school. I got into Harvard. I worked at McKinsey after Harvard, which again, that's because I went to Harvard. 
Uh, and it put me in a social network that allowed me to make the move to Los Angeles and get an interview for a job at CAA. Was not connected to my talent or aptitude to be a successful film person. It was a, it was a, a series of events that, that put me in a social network that allowed me to make that jump. Um, and so I wanted to build an infrastructure that would allow great screenwriters to also make that jump without having to go to the right school or knowing the right people. And I thought that we might be able to do that using the reputation that the Blacklist had built for identifying good work. So we launched this website, it's a two-sided marketplace. Writers can upload their scripts for a fee. They can get feedback for a fee from readers that we hire, all of whom have worked for at least a year as at least assistants in the industry. We're hyper accountable about that feedback. If you get your feedback and you say, this person did not read my script, happens rarely, but from time to time it does. We want you to email us because we want to know that if our readers are doing a bad job, they shouldn't be reading for us anymore. And if the script does well, if one of our readers says, oh my God, this is really good, we then tell the entire industry, hey, everybody, someone thinks this is a really good script. You should probably pay attention to it. And then we also give you free hosting and free script evaluations because uh, we want to keep the best stuff on the site and it shouldn't be at the writer's cost. So, you know, I really think of the Blacklist website as two things. One, it's a common application to the creative industries if you're a feature screenwriter or a television writer or a playwright. And on the industry side, it's an industrial size metal detector in an infinite field of haystacks. And instead of everybody having to go read everything that everyone's ever submitted, you know, we can come back to, to the proverbial barn with a bushel full of needles and say, hey, maybe start here. You all need different needles, but these are all needles, not hay. Got it. So I used to write for Defamer, the Hollywood mm -hmm. news and gossip website that was- I used to of, read Defamer chronically. Oh yeah, RIP. I was part of uh, Gawker, the Gawker yeah. blog network. And so the unveiling of the blacklist every year was like, like the hybrid of like Oscar nomination day and fantasy league draft day. I mean, there was nothing like it in Hollywood uh, as the creator. What was that early reception like from your side? What did you make of that reaction in the industry? I guess, what were people telling you? I mean, initially it was terrifying. You know, I mentioned that I did it anonymously. I sort of sent it out and then went on vacation. And I mean, this is still the era pre iPhone. Like I said, you know, I checked my email at the hotel like uh, business center and it had just been forwarded back to me dozens of times. And people were like, where did this list come from? And I remember thinking, well, that's it. I guess I'm going to law school. Like my mom, my mom <laughs> will get her wish. I'm going to get run out of town. It's um, over. Yeah. I mean, literally. And then, you know, six months into that year, I got a phone call from an agent um, basically pitching me a new client, pitching me a new client and a script that his client had written. And he thought, it would be Leo's next movie, right? And I got a version of that call like at least once a week. But this one was different because he ended the conversation by saying, hey, listen, don't tell anybody, but I have it on really good authority. This is going to be the number one script on next year's blacklist. And I remember thinking like, that's fascinating because I'm not making another blacklist. Um, and he obviously didn't know that he was talking to the person who had made the first one. And so besides the fact that I wasn't going to make one, even if I had intended to, you know, you don't know six months out what's going to be the number one script in the list. It's a survey. Um, but I realized in that moment that if the speculative notion of getting on the list had value, and clearly it did, otherwise this agent would not be pitching me on, you know, the lie that it would be, then actually getting on the list must have real value for the writers that were on it, right? And I'd seen that anecdotally, right? Like my friends who had jobs similar to mine were reading all of the scripts that were on it. You would see in the trades 
you know, attachments to the scripts that were on it, or, you know, the script would sell to a, a buyer who clearly had intent to make it quickly. So I did it again the next year. Um, the LA Times, Boris Kitt, as I recall, uh, figured out it was me and, and outed me as the person who had, had created it. Um, and, you know, I think thereafter the response was very positive. You know, fortunately, I did not get run out of town. I didn't have to go to law school. Um, and it really became a calling card for me as a person who, A, just really venerated writers um, and thought that their work was important, but also as someone who I think was thinking about how all of us could do our jobs a little bit more efficiently and a little bit better. I feel like the blacklist was, um, you know, if not an effort to stir some sort of inclusive kind of meritocratic instinct in Hollywood, it was at least a vigorous kind of nod toward inclusion and meritocracy in a deeply uninclusive, deeply unmeritocratic town and industry. Would you agree with any or all of that or some part of it? I could be totally overthinking it too. No, 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 no. I don't think you are. I think that I have to be honest and admit to only coming to that realization later on, right? Like, I think it's really important that I just acknowledge that the first blacklist was a fundamentally selfish endeavor, right? I was just trying to find good scripts to read. And I think I defaulted, you know, I, I'm a big ex, ex spreadsheet person. I, I love numbers and data. And I think I, in trying to solve this very specific problem that I was having doing my job well, as I perceived it, um, I defaulted to this solution. And once it happened, and once I realized that the, the, the scripts that were on the list were having success and the writers that were on it, that was when my thinking about, okay, this is also this notion of surveying people who have some knowledge within an ecosystem in order to identify things of value had a fundamentally meritocratic thrust behind it. And then on top of that, you know, once we launched the website and we were seeing that, you know, there's no real, uh, you know, unsurprisingly, there's no coincidence between any sort of demographic feature that a writer might have and like talent, even though if you look at the, the numbers on who's writing and who's directing movies in Hollywood, you might think that certain groups are better than others at doing those things. You know, I, I realized that there was an opportunity to sort of have a meritocratic thrust in Hollywood about all of the talent right? Like we're just trying to find good writers. And I think if you're just looking for good writers, you're going to find a much more diverse group uh, than people who have historically gotten paid to write and direct Hollywood movies. And I think as a consequence, we all benefit, right? We get better movies, we get better economic outcomes from those better movies. And as viewers, we get to see more of the world uh, through the, the, the windows that are our screens. Let's get a little abstract here because Hollywood obviously is a place in California. We've been talking about it for the you know, last 15, 20 minutes, obviously, where people live and work, right? But it's also an adjective, you know, and the word yeah. Hollywood connotes and conjures an idea as much as a location. So I'm curious when you hear the word Hollywood, what does it conjure for you? Yeah, I think it has... A large number of diverse meanings, some of which are sort of weirdly incompatible, right? Um, How so? Well, uh, so I think Hollywood is synonymous with the American film industry for good reason, right? Like, I don't think you can make a movie in America and distribute it without it touching some person, corporation, 
et cetera, that is based in the Los Angeles area. Um, and so you can sort of make the case that like Hollywood is the American film industry. Um, for me personally, I think of Hollywood as the people who are working in that system, right? Um, and so when I think of, yeah, when I think of Hollywood, I think of the people who are doing the work of making these things. And maybe they have a connection to Los Angeles, maybe they're living in Los Angeles, but they're not necessarily, right? Like I know filmmakers who don't live in LA who I think of as part of Hollywood. I think Hollywood also, for me, invokes the history of that industry. And the history of that industry isn't great in a lot of facets, right? Right. And so if, when I hear Hollywood, I think, I think a lot of people uh, may, I, I may have a negative instinctive reaction, right? Because I'm thinking about the fact that this industry, the first blockbuster was Birth of a Nation. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm thinking about the historical exclusion of any manner of communities from being a part of that system. Um, and I think about the consequences of that exclusion and the stories that we've told for the world. And those consequences are substantial. But when I think about the people that I've had the pleasure of working with within this ecosystem at this moment, I am also very optimistic because I know the work that those people uh, are engaged in uh, to change that history, to tell kind, certain kinds of stories and to share those stories worldwide and the potential consequence of that work. In that sense, Hollywood's a great thing. And so, but I think, it, but I think the reality is Hollywood is all of those things. Um, and anytime you have any system, which is what I think Hollywood fundamentally is, even if it's one that's also rooted in a place, um, it's going to cut both ways. You know, I think when we think about America, that cuts both ways, if we're being honest. Um, and so, yeah, it is a remarkably consequential system that is rooted in a place that I happen to call home but its influence is far greater than I think anyone has really ever acknowledged. Yeah, and you just kind of mentioned the nexus. Hollywood is a nexus for any and all filmed entertainment in the United States. Um, yeah. Whether you film it in New York City, you film it in Florida, you film, you film it in wherever. You know, Everything ultimately winds in some way through Hollywood. With that in mind, though, like the entertainment industry in California has expanded to... I mean, what's well, been in Marin County, George Lucas, right? Lucasfilm mm -hmm. um, for decades. Plus, I mean, just this year, Apple won a Best Picture Oscar um, with the film Coda. Obviously, they've had Pixar. Um, they've been affiliated with Pixar anyway. Plus, they are getting more into actually production, distribution, et cetera, of mainstream Hollywood, quote unquote, entertainment. But they're based in Cupertino. So are they entertainment industry outsiders even as big and mainstream as they are kind of taking it out of Hollywood and putting it kind of diffusing it around the state? Yeah. I mean, I think in, in practice, they are not outsiders anymore. Um, I, I, I struggled with the notion that they were outsiders, even when people spoke about them as outsiders. I was like at the end of the day, by the time they got engaged in, I mean, Pixar been around for forever, but like, let's take Apple as an example. By the time they decided to engage in production, they were already responsible for distributing a lot of the content that we were making here. So they were of the industry. By streaming, you're, you're referring to, right? Yeah, exactly. Even if they were not producers within the industry. But again, I think that it, they are part of Hollywood in the conceptual sense uh, when I say that it's synonymous with the American film business, right? Even if they're not based in Hollywood. Most of the studios are not based in Hollywood, California, right? Like Sony's in Culver sure, City, sure. Uh, Disney's in Burbank. So I, I think 
those places are closer to Hollywood, like logistically. But again, I think Hollywood is both a place and it is a system. Uh, and I think all people that are part of that system uh, are certainly part of Hollywood. At least that's how I think about it. What role does social justice, as you alluded to earlier, equity play in what you do at the blacklist? Was that always part of the mission, part of the plan? You know, I look, I think that again, we, the website exists, the company exists to create a, to identify and celebrate great screenwriting. And, you know, a, a part and parcel of that is creating a more meritocratic system by which we identify great talent. Now, if you have an industry that has historically not been a meritocracy and that has excluded large groups of large groups of folks from participating, it is inevitable that by creating a meritocracy, you are going to create consequences that can be perceived as sort of social equity or, you know, uh, racially or gender sort of equity uh, based uh, consequences. Right. Would I say that? And look, do we absolutely think about those things? Yes. But we think about those things in order to drive towards a more perfect system that is meritocratic. Like nothing would make me happier than to never have to think about social justice or equity again, right? But if I'm responsible as a human being and frankly as a capitalist, they have to be my priorities because we're losing money and we're losing extraordinary movies and television because we haven't created a system that is meritocratic. Right. And, and I've, I've long believed that probably the, the least expensive change that the industry could make, like the, the, the lowest cost change that the industry could make to create significant financial upside would be to really go hard at addressing those historical inequities um, about access. Um, and, and, you know, look, studies have confirmed this. McKinsey and Company put a study out last year that found that the industry is leaving about $10 billion on the table just as a consequence of anti-black bias. That, that, you know, that's not all women. That's not the Latinx community, even though there's some intersectionality there, obviously. But we're talking about tens of billions of dollars a year just as a consequence of those failures. So, yes, am I focused on social justice and equity? 100%. Why am I fo- focused on social uh, equi- uh, justice and, and equity? It's hard to say. It's because I want to see as many good movies and television shows as humanly possible. I want to see as many different kinds of movies and television shows as possible. I want those movies and television shows to make as much money as possible. And it's the way things should be. So I always struggle to like put my finger on that because, you know, again, one could easily have no interest in equity and social justice. You could only be interested in chasing the money. And if you're running the, if you're looking at the numbers, you and I should end up in the exact same place about the priority of those things. I just happen to be a black guy from West Central Georgia, so I'm sensitive to those issues, and they also become an ethical and moral imperative for me. But, you know, it's one of those times where because of the historical failures, everybody can do right and do good simultaneously. How is the entertainment industry doing then on equity and inclusion initiatives in 2022, especially versus when you started in the industry? I mean, maybe we take the the successes first, what would you say is working? So are things better than they were in 2003 when I arrived? Absolutely. Zero question about that. And I, I, you know, I can sort of look at, you know, when I arrived in the industry, it wasn't that there weren't senior leaders in, uh, in Hollywood who are black or diverse, um, but there were far fewer of them, right? And there's a critical mass of folks 
frankly, who were part of the generation that I came up with, who are now, you know, executive vice presidents, presidents of production at major studios. And so there is a greater participation in the conversations that are consequential among diverse people in the industry. On the other hand, if you look at the numbers, they're not good. If you look at the percentage of uh, studio movies that are directed by women, if you look at um, the, the percentage of uh, film and television written by members of uh, communities of color and by women, I mean, we have a long, long way to go. And as a consequence, we are losing in a ton of money and the movies and television that we're watching aren't as good as they could be. Um, so I, I think, you know, we can't, progress does not mean a mission accomplished banner uh, should be hung. Um, and I think, frankly, the, the, the speed at which uh, the industry has changed um, is insufficient, um, in part because of the, the great consequence of, of our failures, right? We're not making widgets here. You know, we're not making toothpaste. If, if the toothpaste industry was not as diverse, I don't know that the, uh, the consequences would be as great as if the film and television industry, because the, the stuff that we make, you know, tells people how they should value themselves and how they should see themselves, how they should see and value other people. And that has great consequence in our politics, in the way people engage with each other around the world, right? Like, um, you can't tell me that Me Too as a phenomenon and, and just the broader disrespect of women's bodily autonomy rights isn't in part a consequence of the stories that Hollywood has told about what is appropriate in male-female relationships and what power looks like and who uh, can be the boss, uh, so to speak. Um, you can't tell me that the conversations that we have about immigration in this country uh, aren't tied to the images that Hollywood has shared about, you know, immigrant communities. Um, you know, you can't tell me that... Um, you know, assumptions that many Americans make about uh, sort of the violence in the black community and, and, my, and specifically my as a black American man's per propensity to violence um, when I think it's 60% of gang members uh, shown in film are black, but only 30% of them, according to the FBI, are. Mm. Um, I don't know that I have those numbers uh, exactly right, but that's the rough uh, scale we're talking about. So we have a long way to go. Um, and again, it's not, it shouldn't, it doesn't have to be a moral or ethical imperative. There is a lot of money to be made by making these changes. So if you can't do it for the right reasons, do it for the wrong ones. So with that in mind, to what extent can Hollywood and the entertainment industry and thus California by extension yeah. kind of build and fortify and export social justice and racial justice nationally or globally? through its work and, and how can it, how much further can it go in the next maybe five to 10 years? You know, I think until the people who are making the decisions about hiring and green lighting film and television look like America, look like California, look like the world, I don't know that it's immediately possible to sort of do what we as an industry need to do. And again, I don't, I don't want the focus to be Hollywood needs to be exporting social justice. Right. Hollywood needs to be exporting cultural content, film, television, theater, whatever, that looks like the world, that That's looks fair. like America, that That's looks fair. like California. Yeah. And I think right. that the inevitable consequence of that 
is, uh, you know, there, there will be more justice in the world because we will be able to see each other as we actually are. We'll be able to see our common humanity in the culture that we create and share. Right. Um, but I don't know that that's possible until the, the, the people who are deciding what gets made and by whom change. Right. But I, I will say one thing. There is, there is, there is some reason for optimism. And, and, and I find that optimism. I find hope in the filmmakers of color, the women, the people who are members of these underrepresented communities who have always had to be that much better to have any chance at all. And when, when the doors get open slightly, they tend to blow the hinges off it, right? And I, I, I go back to Ava DuVernay as a great example, right? Like she had to make her first film like on her credit cards. She won the Best Director Award at Sundance and still had a hard time getting offered studio movies. But, you know, eventually the door creaked open a little bit and she's now building her own house. And I think that I, I see extraordinary talent in all of these communities and I see the extraordinary work that they're doing and we've all seen some of the movies that Ryan Coogler or, or Lulu Wong or any number of other filmmakers uh, have made. You can't be you can't run your business as well unless you understand how to find and work with those people. And so over time, it is inevitable that the people who are running the companies that are ostensibly sort of the centers of, of the culture, you, you will either have to figure it out or you will run your companies into the ground. Um, and so that sort of eventually the, you know, it'll all come out in the wash, but I'm, I'm impatient. And, and how long is one meant to wait for justice? Right. What about your other endeavors? What else keeps you busy? Um, you know, I, I, I'm lucky enough that I think by virtue of, of, of the work that I've done in the blacklist, I get invited to do things that I couldn't have ever uh, predicted. So, you know, I was, a advisor for this year's uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art costume exhibition uh, associated with the Met Gala. Um, you know, I'm a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Um, you know, I'm also a ridiculously hardcore soccer fan, as anybody who follows me on social media will know. Oh, yeah. um, right. You know, I'm a season ticket holder at LAFC. Uh, it's a that's actually one of my favorite things about sort of being a, an Angelino right now to have been able to be like a founding season ticket holder at my hometown club uh, is very special to me. And I think they've done a very good job uh, with everything around the team. Um, yeah, I mean, but it's also just, you know, spending time with my wife and, and puppy uh, here in Los Feliz. What is the biggest challenge you would say California faces and how can that challenge be surmounted? I think the biggest challenge that California has mirrors probably the challenge that America has in this moment and really probably a broader human struggle, which is how do we provide an opportunity for everybody to have an equal chance at living up to their, to what they put into the community, to, to receiving what they put into the community, right? especially in a world that, you know, has, has significant class realities that has language barriers. You know, California has more, I think, sort of languages spoken in the state than probably anywhere else in the world um, as a sort of political designation. Um, how do you make sure that, that everybody can participate, that everybody can have, you know, it's a cliche, 
but like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How do you provide for that? How do you make sure that, that everybody is a part of that conversation? Um, and I do not have the answers. Um, if I did, I'd probably run for office. And I think anybody who knows me knows I have no business doing that. But these are, I think we're daily confronted with these massive questions about what it means to be humans at this time. And anytime you have that many millions of people gathered together in one place, we got to figure it out. That's the, the emotional, that's the emotional thrust of it, I think. That's actually the first time anyone's ever answered the question that way. I think that the idea of, of everyone getting out of California, what they put into it, and having a chance to participate is... But that's the fundamental human question, right? Like, I want to live in a world where that's true, right? I, and I, I, think, I think that world is possible. I just think that it, we have to decide that it's a priority and decide that, that when we say everyone, we mean everyone. And I don't know that that's happened anywhere yet. In your experience discussing California with folks outside the state, what do you find they most misunderstand about California? Well, I think this is probably specific to Los Angeles, although I think it probably also happens in the sort of Silicon Valley of it all. But just this assumption that Los Angeles is only the film and television industry, right? Right. Like it, yeah. it, is, it is certainly the defining industry of the city and it's the most visible, but like there are a lot of people in Los Angeles who don't work in the film and television industry. In fact, most of them don't. Right. Uh, and, and that we're, you know, we're a working city. We're a, 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 we're a big blue collar metropolis that most people are not going to movie premieres and hanging out on set. And, you know, um, I, I think that's probably the biggest misconception that, and again, I think people know that rationally, but when you think about Los Angeles, you, it, there is a tendency to default to the glitz and glam, um, and not the reality that, you know, the vast majority of people are just trying to make rent and put food on the table as is true everywhere. We end every episode with the same question for all guests. Who is your favorite Californian past or present and why? You know what? I'm going to give it to Ava. Wow. I'm going to give it to Ava. Wow. Okay. Because again, I just, I think she won the best director award at Sundance maybe just 10 years ago. And when I think about the numbers that she has put up, not just the extraordinary film and television that she's made, but the doors that she's opened for other folks who will then open doors for other people, who will then open doors for other people, um, it's hard for me to get away. Like, no one's ever had a decade in the film industry like she. And I, don't, I think in 50 years when we look back and we can sort of tally up all of the impact that she's had, I don't think it's a crazy prediction that she might be the most consequential person in the film industry certainly in the first half of the century, like who knows what comes post 2050, but like from my vantage point, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with Ava. I love it. Great answer. Franklin Leonard, thank you so much for being with us. It's been a true pleasure. It has been a joy. All right, there you have it. Franklin Leonard, folks. Thank you very much to Franklin for stopping by. It was great to catch up with him about the blacklist and all of his work. And uh, yeah, a lot to think about there. I'm really pleased to get season three off to such a great start. I look forward to bringing you more fascinating folks, compelling conversations in the weeks ahead. And uh, yeah, 
I am so, so glad to be back. What is California is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Stu Van Aresdale. Our theme music is by Sounds Supreme. You can follow us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia and subscribe to our Substack newsletter at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That gets you a free podcast in your inbox every Tuesday and a free weekend links roundup in your inbox every Friday. Drop me a line anytime. Email me at hello at whatiscalifornia.com if you want to send suggestions, comments, feedback, hate mail, love notes, marriage proposals, other stuff I haven't even thought of yet. You can find me hello at whatiscalifornia.com. Remember to please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked What is California, I would love it if you rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts. It does help new listeners find us. That is a wrap for the season three premiere. I'm so glad to be back with you and we will see you next time. Until then, remember, as always, keep your eye on the bear.